Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Lynn Power. She's the co-founder and CEO of Masami. So Lynn, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I was excited to get your email because we had, you know, connected previously and yeah, I've enjoyed that. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Your, your advice has been very helpful and I, I'm particularly interested in your journey because you've spent so much time at a big advertising firm. Now you're on the entrepreneurial side, which I've been on the entrepreneurial side, looking into the advertising side. So I have lots of questions. Oh, yes. I will try to. uh, It's a little bit like Wizard of Oz, right? Where you pull the curtain back. Sure, sure. So as you pull the curtain back, um, you know, for the average sort of small business, maybe even the median sized business looking into the, the ad space, what are some misunderstandings that sort of that, you know, people that are not in the ad space would have of a, a larger agency? I think people, well, a couple things, because I, I can talk about it both from a startup brain and a corporate brain, because I've worked with all kinds of clients now, and I am probably my own worst client because I, <laughs> I know way too much. Do you know what I'm saying? But I would say people have this impression that digital advertising is really easy and fast and quick, and there are parts of it that operate that way for sure. And yes, you can get an ad up on Facebook within 10 minutes but it doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it on brand. And there's a lot of analytics that go around digital advertising that you need to understand in order to make it effective. So that's probably the first thing is I used to get a lot of clients at, at when I was at J. Walter Thompson, you know, wanting to just do sort of like, like they didn't really understand what was involved with digital advertising, put it that way. And so they'd be like, oh, can you just throw some stuff up? And yeah, you can, but again, it's it's how good do you want it to be? So so that's probably the first thing. The second thing I would say is just related to the brand because a lot of entrepreneurs that I know and maybe you can relate to this, not you yourself, but in you being in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, a lot of them get really enamored with their products. Like they love the product they're building. They just think it's awesome. And okay, that's great. You need to be passionate about what you're making, but they don't think about the brand. And there is a difference. You need to think about your brand values, your brand story, you know, how transparent you want to be, you know, a lot of elements that go into actually the stickiness of the brand. And relating that back to the big agency world, that is what agencies are good at. So sometimes I guess the misconception is that oh, who cares? Creative's easy. Anyone can make good creative to be on brand and tell the story you want to tell and then have it all hang together in a way that's additive is not so easy because if you don't do that, then you'll end up with a dog's breakfast a lot of times. And I was working with startup founders where that was the case where they had just been putting things out that they liked that was interesting. It almost felt more like a personal you know, your social media was more like somebody's personal account as opposed to like the brand or the business. Like it lacked a point of view, if you know what I'm saying. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Now, what are the fundamentals of getting that right? 
Well, okay. The first thing is you have to actually have brand values. (laughs) (laughs) And it's easy and hard at the same time because coming up with four or five values is not rocket science, but to come up with four or five values that are absolutely totally true to who you are and to what you want to build and then values that really should not be changing over time. That's not that easy. You really have to think through what it is you want to stand for and put that stake in the ground. But then I guarantee once you do it, you'll be so happy because those values really inform so much of what you end up doing. They inform the product, as I mentioned before, (laughs) you know, you might love your product, but it could be the next generation of the product. It could be your innovation pipeline. They inform who you hire, what kind of culture you want to create for your company. You know, just so many different elements that start to come through and what you're creating. So that to me is always the good starting point. And like I said, it's not that hard to do if you sit down and force yourself to do it, but it is, it does take some discipline and it does take some sort of introspection, if you will. Yeah, for sure. Now, you went from being the head, uh, the CEO of a sort of very recognized iconic agency, and now you're, you've launched a, a hair care product brand. Walk me through the why and, and what happened there. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I spent 30 years in advertising, which is a long time. And I will say I loved 98% of it, right? <laughs> like, I really did. Like it was a really good career and it's a great for career for people who want to use sort of left brain and right brain, right? Like, because you really can think about creativity as a business tool. And that's kind of cool when you think about that, because yeah, you can flex your creative muscle, but also be very business-minded. And that's really what I really, really enjoyed. But what I found happened is the more senior I got in my career, and then to your point, I was running, you know, as CEO of a very large agency the job becomes way less fun because, you know, you're dealing with bureaucratic stuff. We had a big public lawsuit that I was unfortunately having to sort of oversee the outcome of that. There were just HR issues. There were financial meetings constantly. And that is for me, like kind of torturous. It's like necessary evil. I mean, some people love that. And I don't want to imply that if you're an accountant and you love your job, that that's not awesome. (laughs) That is awesome. But for me, being somebody who really loved to build brands, I had gotten really far away from that. I was pretty far removed from my passion. So, yeah, so I kind of decided in 2018, well, you know, I've kind of done what I want to do in advertising. There's really nowhere else to go. So now the test is, can I do it for myself? You know, I've been advising all these other people for so long. Maybe I have to take my own advice and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's sort of kind of what led me to the path I'm on now, which is absolutely liberating, but also, as as you know, quite difficult, right? A lot of challenges launching your own brand. And I launched not only one, which you've mentioned, which is Masami, my my clean premium hair care brand. But I also launched a second business in 2020, which is called Ilda Nature, and it's a luxury bee-powered home fragrance company. And then I got cancer. (laughs) So it was like, you know, you can't plan what's going to happen to you or how it happens, but at least I am grateful that I am in control. That is huge. Yeah. And, And cannot be sort of taken for granted. Sure. 
Sure. So in between this, I noticed you you had a boutique agency during the transition, and I was reading through the website, and there's something that I did not recognize was I think it's a heresy workshop. Yeah. What is that? That is basically about helping brands, and we worked with mostly startups actually, helping them kind of confront their worst fears, mm. get to a better place because. If you think of the world today, there's so much stuff that's unpredictable and there's so many things that can force you to rethink your business. And some of those things are valid and you need to rethink your business and other things will pass. So you kind of have to be able to navigate what those are and just, you know, look, look at, there's so many examples of companies that did not do this. Like when you think of blockbuster video, right? They, they could have been Netflix, you know? You think of Barnes and Noble, General Motors and their electric uh, vehicles are so behind. Tesla is so far ahead of them. You know, you, you just think of these legacy companies that I would say kind of were asleep at the wheel. So the idea of the heresy is like, what if you didn't sell DVDs anymore, Blockbuster? What would your business look like? Oh, my God, we couldn't do that. That's crazy. No, yeah, you actually can do that. And if you don't do it, you're going to be out of business. You know what I mean? So that's what it does. It sort of forces some of those really hard, painful questions. What I've noticed is when you're in in an established organization, people think that certain things are like the holy grail that can't be touched. You know, if you work at Hershey, oh, you you have to sell chocolate. Oh my God, you can't sell wellness products or, you know what I'm saying? Like there's certain things that become so ingrained in that company's ethos and culture. And so it's really fun to blow it up. It sounds like it. You, you put on your, your, your pessimistic hat, you, you crowd a bunch of people in the room and, and think of all the things that can go wrong. Is that, is that kind of the gist of it? It kind of is. It kind of is. And then you kind of go down these paths and you go, but actually this one over here you know, what if we live stream all our, our movies instead of putting them on TV? You know what? That's not so crazy. Maybe that's something we should do. You know, it, that's where it leads to these breakthrough ideas for companies to see where the real pivots should happen. And like I said, what things should just be kind of like ignored, I guess, or or acknowledged and moved on, maybe. For sure. Now, I was looking at some of the ideas around the product launches you're doing, and they've been described as developing a zero budget marketing plan and executing. Walk me through that. Well, that's what I've been doing for the last two years. (laughs) It's like when you're bootstrapped, you know, you have to be super scrappy and it's tricky because, you know, there are tools out there. We'll use social media as an example that yes. Okay. Technically social media is free, but if you really want to get traction and get momentum, you know, you kind of need to do some paid advertising. So it's not like it's a hundred percent, you know, just, just create an, a content and, and people will come. You do have to give it a little push. So the idea of zero-based marketing is really the core of self-funding your business, you know, figuring out your business priorities. And when you get that dollar from a sale, where's it going to go? How are you going to split it up? You know, a nickel goes to Facebook. Actually, I don't like Facebook, so but we do it. But maybe two cents goes to Facebook, and then and then you know we're going to throw a little bit to Pinterest. We're going to throw a little bit to 
you know, some retail partners, we're going to do some samples, you know what I mean? You, you figure all that out, but it really is coming from the perspective of not over investing what you don't have. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, uh, learning from that and then optimizing against that the next round, you have a, a dollar. The next, yeah, exactly. Like hopefully then you just, you know, as you grow, it's a bit more of a, you know, slow, steady type of approach than, you know, going to a VC and getting a few million dollars and jumpstarting your business. But for a lot of reasons, many of us and myself being, being one of them decides not to go and get outside investment money. You know, like we kind of decided we're okay with the slow and steady approach. And there are lots of tools. Um, I mentioned social media, but like even podcasts, which we're doing right now, I've been on probably a hundred over the past year because they're great ways to get your brand story out there. And for small businesses, if you can offer value in sharing your journey, your marketing tips, whatever, then there's no reason you can't be out there doing it too. Yeah. You know, of course you have the background, but is, was there an active uh, push towards um, getting on shows or more organic? It was more organic. I can't remember the first one or two I got on, but I think somebody had reached out to me. And then from there, you know, you do one and then, and then somebody recommends you for another one. And then before I knew it, I'm doing them all the time. And then I stopped really in September of last year because of my cancer. And mm -hmm. I didn't really want to be doing the video portion. So anyone listening, sorry about that. You're not going to see the video today, but trust me, I'm saving you from <laughs> seeing, you know, a bald hair care founder, which the irony is not lost on me for that. So yeah, I kind of dialed back, but it's also really easy to find podcasts to get on, which I discovered several months into me doing it is that there are a bunch of Facebook groups, find a guest, be a guest. You can just search that. And they're podcast hosts looking for guests on specific topics. And a lot of times it's guests posting what they can talk about, looking for podcasts to appear on. And it's a great way for anyone who's not sure how to start or what to do. That's, that's where you start. It takes like less than five minutes to pitch yourself. And the hit rate has been outstanding. Like I don't do a ton of those. But I found some really, really good podcasts that way. And also just some of these podcast hosts are people that I've connected with even, okay, you're a good example, more than once, right? Where, you know, we'll do something together and that leads to a blog or it leads to something else. And before you know it, you know, yeah, you, you kind of count that person in your circle of friends, you know? Totally. Now. You've done the whole range. So I, I thought of something that would be fun. So picture you were launching your company and for whatever reason, you raised a million dollars. And what would you have done differently with your launch if you had a bit more resources? I would have probably put a little bit more into marketing for sure. I would have put a little bit more into some distribution sales help. And I probably would have done a bigger influencer push with some mm. bigger names. We do a lot of stuff with micro influencers because we get a lot of people asking us for samples and reaching out. But, you know, it's really hard to go to make a dent when you're dealing with influencers who have like 10,000 followers, you know, or less. Do you have some sort of criteria on, I, I'm assuming this is some sort of product giveaway or some 
something like that. Do you have sort of a bar in terms of people reaching out to you for stuff? We look at their account and just see if it looks like they're a good fit in terms of their focus, their aesthetic. If they're posting a lot about food products, for example, you know, then you kind of go, mm, not sure, you know, it makes sense. And we also want people that are, I know this sounds cliche, but authentic, meaning if you look at their Instagram, you know, they have more than just product posts <laughs> so that you can actually see a little bit more about what they are and who they are and what they're all about. Same thing as I was talking about with brands and storytelling and getting your brand values. You know, you kind of want to know a little bit deeper what they stand for, not just that they're going to take your product and post a picture of themselves, you know, whatever, you know, with, with the product. So that's kind of been our, so it's been more, I guess, qualitative than quantitative. Sure. I think that works for the smaller ones. I think for the larger influencers, you do need some quantitative results because if you're spending money, that's where the ROI kicks in. And then you say, okay, if I'm giving somebody a thousand dollars or whatever it is, and I get, you know, a hundred dollars of sales, and then you kind of go, well, but I'm factoring in the awareness and factoring in the brand halo. You got to decide if it's worth it. You know what mm. I mean? Because what I've seen is the conversion is not always there, but a lot of people don't think about the other stuff you're getting on top of just a sale, right? You are getting eyeballs and awareness and credentials and credibility. And now the small business, sometimes it's hard to think about the uh, brand halo when the bills are piling up. But when people come to you with that, how do you, how do you talk them through that? So they understand more of a mid to long-term uh, buildup. Well, I find that there are some startup founders who really want to understand marketing and embrace marketing. And there's some that just have it in their head that marketing doesn't work. Hmm. And I actually have worked with both. And the ones that say marketing doesn't work, usually when I was doing consulting, they would come to us because somebody on their board or one of their advisors had basically said, why aren't you doing anything? You know, why aren't you, why am I not seeing any thought leadership or PR or anything? And then they're like, oh, okay, I guess I got to try stuff. But the problem with that is if like, you really don't believe in it, you're going to just find those flaws. Cause I could take that scenario that I just told you spending a thousand dollars on an influencer. And if I was a skeptical startup founder, I'd say, well, wait, I only sold a hundred dollars. That's crazy. I'm not doing that again. You know, it's very easy to say that. But the founders that have a little bit more of a perspective, which is re reality, frankly, of it takes time to build. And when you think of the entire funnel, you can't just do stuff at the bottom of the funnel. That's going to just, you know, be the stuff that gets somebody to convert. You have to actually bring them along, which means you have to do top of the funnel stuff too, which is brand awareness. And we found that for us and our product and our category, it takes people about seven times, seven times to see our products before they actually buy. So if you think about that, like you're checking the box on those seven times, you know, the six, six of the seven times you're having to just do stuff that you're not going to get a purchase with. And then maybe that seventh time you're lucky and they'll, they'll actually go, you know what? Fine. I'm tired of seeing you, Masumi. I will buy your products now. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, they, and you finally get them to try it. So it's a little bit like that. But I think, I think the reality is, you know, marketing is not, and this is again, a misperception of digital advertising that you can just turn it on and see instant results. 
you got to tinker with a lot of this stuff. A lot of it has to be tested, tried, optimized, reworked, change the creative, change the target, get a better clone audience for Facebook. You know what I mean? You got to play around with it. There's no silver bullet. And that I think is what a lot of founders think. They think it's a silver bullet that they could just flip it on, flip on a switch, start the marketing, and suddenly their business is going to, you know, double overnight. <laughs> I, can assure, I can assure you that's not the case. But but I can also assure you that the marketing does help for your overall brand health. And it does help for your, like I said, your holistic funnel thinking through, you know, your customer journey and and how you want people to relate and engage with your brand. Yeah. So just taking that one step further. So if you go from seven figures and you add an an extra zero and you go to eight figures on the budget, are there any tactic strategies or channels that would change in, in your approach? Well, I think we would be doing a lot more video for sure. And I think video is critical It's interesting because these days you can kind of get by with influencer and user-generated videos for a while, but at some point, it's nice to have some really high-quality output that is brand-led as well. So that's what we we would be doing if we had like lots of money. I'd be doing more video content. Yeah, for sure. Now you touched on this with core values and influencers. I know you do a lot of partnerships. How much of a fit in terms of your brand values does the the partner need to be for for you to sort of think through the partnership sort of working out? Because I do notice you partner a lot with a lot of companies. We do. And actually partnering has been one of the best things you can do if you are a bootstrap startup. Because what you're basically doing is you're borrowing each other's audiences to grow. And it's really a very efficient way to grow both your email list, your social following, and get sales. So what we look for is like-minded partners who are values-based. They don't have to have exactly the same values as us, but they have to care about more than just putting a product out and making money, you know? So for us, we're we're very focused on sustainability. We're cruelty free. We're vegan. We're female founded. We give back to ocean research. You know, so there's there's a number of sort of places where you know we feel like for us that's important. So when we're partnering with other brands, if if they're in the beauty space, we want brands that are clean. You know, we're clean. We don't have any toxic ingredients. So, you know, we don't want to have a brand that has sulfates in there for example. And then it's just about sort of the spirit of the founder. And when we do a partnership, we put a lot into it. We do a lot of sharing out, you know, are they the same? Do they have the same mindset? You know, are they also willing to do that? Because we've had some partnerships where they, they just haven't, they've dropped the ball. They didn't build their end of the bargain. And then we don't want to work with them again. So they go on our, our, big red X list, right? Where we're like, we're not going to work with them again, but the ones that are great, we'll double down. We'll do more stuff together. And those partnerships go well beyond the communications because what we end up doing is we end up sharing a lot of marketing tips and advice with each other. I'll introduce brands and partners to channels that I'm on. We've gotten a a bunch of brands onto live streaming channels because we're, we've been kind of early adopters of live streaming we're on like five different channels. So I get questioned by a lot of founders about like, what's that all about? And what do you do? You know, so it's more than just 
yeah, like doing a giveaway. It's, it's really, truly trying to help each other grow. Yeah, for sure. Oh, there's so many ways I can go to. So live streaming. Wait, so I took a quick look at it. I've been away from the consumer side quite a while. So what do you find you're on so many, why so many, and what's been working especially good about that? So the reason we're on so many is because my philosophy about lots of things in marketing is like planting seeds, right? You have to plant a lot of seeds and then see which ones grow. And the ones that grow, you water. And the ones that don't, you let them wither and die. (laughs) And so, yeah, live streaming has been a bit like that because so many of the platforms are new, like new within the last even two years. And we really don't know which ones are going to take off and which ones are going to kind of pivot or disappear or whatever. And they're all a little bit different, even though this premise is the same, which is basically social selling. But some of them really, really lend themselves to longer formats like Talk Shop Live. Others are more short, five-minute quick videos. Some are more influencer-based. Some are more like founder videos. So they're all kind of have their little bit of spin on them. And my co-founder, James, has been doing most of our live streaming for us, which has been great. And he's had to hone our pitch over the last two years because when we started, we were he was doing it from his apartment because things were all shut down. And now he can go to salons and do stuff. But even then, we're still learning and we're finding that, you know, people want to be entertained. It's like human nature, right? And so just, just doing somebody's hair in a salon is not necessarily enough. You know, you have to figure out ways if you're going to do live streaming to make it engaging for the audience. And like I said, some platforms are just easier to do that on than others. That's the deal. And, you know, for us, they're great platforms to experiment on when you have a product that you can demonstrate. Most of the platforms we're on don't cost anything to join. They do a rev share of sales. So it's really risk-free for brands. And then you get content, you know, you get these, these great videos that you can, you know, share around. And so I, I think it's a really good channel. It's just time will tell who emerges as the live streaming leader. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have your, your uh, sort of foot planted in, in many camps, just to, just to make sure that you're, you're on whichever one takes off. Exactly. Now, in terms of brand development and, you know, being effective there. I mean, what companies do you look to as like kind of the, for you, the gold standard of doing it right? Oh boy. That's a hard one. <laughs> I I'd say there are bits and pieces I take from different brands. Okay, you know, perfect. Yeah. Like when I look in the industry and I'm like, well, Glossier did such an amazing job getting Gen Z. Well, not so much these days, but when they launched, what can you learn from that and how they've created those experiences? Now we're creating our own pop-up store in San Francisco, actually. And that kind of was born out of looking at the industry and seeing like Allure is doing a pop-up store in New York City. And you know, why can't we do that? Why can't we get like-minded indie brands? We don't have money to go into Allure and spend you know, on advertising, which would probably get us a spot in their store. So how can we do it ourselves? So that's kind of what we do is we sort of look around and see what we like and then see what we can adapt. And that's worked pretty well. I mean, the pop-up store that we're doing, we have 29 brands confirmed right now. We might have one more join, but they're all indie brands in the clean beauty and wellness space. 
and they're all hungry to just, you know, connect with consumers and to be able to have content to grow and things like that. So that's. Mm. So the, the 29 brands that are coming in, are you hosting something? Are they coming in on that or how's that being structured? So we're running the whole thing. We, we got a space in Stonestown Galleria in San Francisco. Ah. Yeah. It's an old Aveda space across from Sephora. Wow. And so we have it for two months in April and May. And it's a lot of work to put everything together, but that's just one example of, you know, trying to experiment, building on the partnerships that we've worked hard to, you know, to nurture over the last two years. And then kind of looking out at the landscape of what everybody else is doing and saying, what can we do to push our brand forward without a lot of money? Mm. And I'm just trying to think through, I went to school in San Francisco, so I know the Molly you're talking about. But is this a win if it's revenue neutral or what are your goals with that? Because I feel like I'm feeling you're not going to pop a bunch of these things up everywhere. What is your goal with this uh, initiative? Yes, I would say revenue neutral, but we can't control the traffic these days in terms of foot traffic and store traffic and COVID and all that. So what we're doing is we're using the space for events not just in-person events, but live streaming events. So we've got stuff happening almost every day. And so the the idea there being, again, PR, awareness, brand building at sort of the top of the funnel, and then also giving people an opportunity to come in and purchase. And then if we all feel that it was a success, us and our retail partner, then we're going to have it be a traveling a traveling pop-up that will go to different cities. I get it. And everyone's spending their money to promote this single point and try to break through the noise. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, when you have 29 or 30 brands all joining forces, even on Instagram, helping each other, you know, it, it makes a difference and you really don't feel like you're just doing it all by yourself anymore. You know, you've got, you've got other brands helping and pushing and, You know, we have two different brands that are in the pop-up offered up their PR agencies as support. Like we've got, it's been really nice. Like it's super collaborative, which is what, what I wanted it to be, you know? Wonderful. Okay. There's so many things I can ask you, but is there anything I didn't ask you or covered that, that you commonly get asked about? I would say people ask me a lot about career pivoting as an older founder because I was 52 when my brands launched. And what I always say to people is, you know, don't be stuck in a job you hate. It's never too late to do something you love. And the more time you think about it, you're going to kick yourself if a couple of years go by and you're still thinking about it and you haven't moved the needle at all. So if you have a great idea, there's lots of ways you can kind of nurture it and get it going. And you don't have to quit your job necessarily to do it. You can network like crazy. You can validate the idea. You can do some of these brand pillars and brand values and get all that stuff sorted. And then you can quit assuming everything lines up and you feel good about what you're doing. But I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is because I have, I know a lot of people who are pretty miserable in their current situations. And I kind of feel like I get the complacency piece, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there's so many interesting opportunities now, especially now that virtual has become, 
more of a thing, you know, it's not, not an exception anymore. You know, you really don't have to put up with a, a bad job. <laughs> well, to, to sum it up then, you know, confront your fears. There's no time like today. That is an excellent summary. Thank you. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for, for sharing. I love your story and um, I um, look forward to uh, following along as you progress. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.